as we interviewed more and more CEOs, good CEOs doing amazing work, those were the foundational principles. We lived our servant purpose. We, we as leaders model our, the values that, that are up on our wall. We live those values and we treat everybody, employees, customers, vendors, contractors with the utmost respect. And those were the three defining moments. I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that can make epic differences in our lives and at work. I'm so excited to introduce our guest, who's someone I admire and is a very close friend of mine. I've known him for years now, and he's just an amazing human being. Uh, Mark Babbitt is a speaker, an author, a blogger, a culture architect, an executive coach, and a career mentor not to mention a very good friend. And he serves as president of Work IQ and CEO founder of U-Turn. Mark's new book written with another good friend, uh, Chris Edmonds, is titled Good Comes First, How Today's Leaders Create an Uncompromising Company Culture That Doesn't Suck. It was just released on September 28th, and it's already on Amazon, um, and it's an Amazon bestseller. He's co-authored the bestseller, A World Gone Social, How Companies Must Adapt to Survive. Uh, followers find Mark's advice in Entrepreneur, Inc., Forbes, and many other publications. An in-demand speaker, Mark's Mark was named one of Inc.'s Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers. And I do want to say that Mark has been just an amazing human being over the years. And we don't get to catch up very often, but when we do, it's like we leave off like it was just yesterday. And that's the thing I love about him is that we can just like pick up right where we left off. But you are in for a real treat. When you get to hear from Mark, you hear somebody who is deep and resonates at such a great level, and he really loves what he does. So here's Mark. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Brian. I, geez, I hope I can live up to all that. That was, that was, that was like a eulogy. That was great. <laughs> How did it feel to watch from, well, not, not above? <laughs> <laughs> not above it. It felt great. And I and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your friendship and the kind words. You got it. Well, let's jump right in. Um, I want to talk about and jump into uh, what one small thing was that or felt small at the time, but ended up being a big shift for you. Well, I think the, the first thing, Brian, is that we, we, I don't know about you, but where I was raised with, with a certain uh, mindset, a certain mentality. And I, I raised in a small town in Oregon. Um, my dad was in lumber. We moved ever, you know, everywhere. Um, almost like being a military family chasing the trees. And, and I, and I learned that relationships are literally, I know this is a cliche, what you make of them. It's, at, very, at a very young age, I learned your friends are who you're with right now, and and your your mentors are the coaches, the teachers, the the adults that you're with right now. And and I I've carried I, it didn't it didn't register at the time. 
I didn't, it didn't even occur to me until I was probably in my thirties and forties, how important that knowledge um, gained early was to me. But it turns out it's huge because now, I mean, especially with the COVID thing, we, we, we lose touch and we come back together and we, you know, life changed. And, and it was the relationships that got us through those changes. So it, it, very interesting lesson as a young man. Can you um, tell me like a, a story at that point in your life? Uh, something that actually happened that, that one shift that really makes you like pull, pulls you back into that moment that you look at and you go, wow, that really changed a lot for me. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, as, as you know about me, Brian, I've coached baseball for 35 years now, which tells you how old I am. Um, and every year we bring a group of, you know, 12, 14 boys together and for nine months, those, not just the boys, but their families become our family. And those relationships become the most important thing in our world for, for you know, for, for that segment of time. And then at the end of the season, you, you, you go away. I equate it to, okay, the kids are off to college now. We'll never see that group of kids that way again, even though some of them continue on with you um, as kids get older, that, that becomes less and less commonplace. So you work with these families, you bond with these families, you learn to love these families, you learn to, to, to know which of the families you don't want to continue a relationship with, just like family. And then, and then you go away again. And, you, and then three months later, you're building yet another family. And now, and you and I were talking just before we went on the air, my, my youngest is in, in high school now. And high school is his family. His teammates, his peers, his, his teachers are in high school are his mentors now, not, you know, not me, not maybe not his mom. And so it's this, every year we get to live what, what we just described that you build this set of relationships that serve you and the mission well right now. And then you move on. You remember a family maybe that stuck out, um, don't have to use names, but maybe that, or even a, a player that just changed, uh, not just him or herself, but yourself as, as oh, a yeah. coach. There's so that, many. Is there one that you yeah. just, you, that sticks out uh, that many years ago or in the lineup? You go, wow, that made it all worth it. Well, I, I'll tell you, if you don't mind, two quick, two quick stories yeah. about that. When, please. Well, when I was coaching high school ball, I started uh, 30 years ago and I had this amazing talent and he played third base for me. And he could hit up at 14 years old. He could hit a, hit a ball 380 feet. I mean, he was just amazing. And, but his values were not aligned with mine as a coach. And, and he thought that as he went, so the team went and he was not a team player at all. And, and I replaced him. I, I, in my first year in high school ball, I told his family values are important to me and teamwork is important to me. And as good as, he is he he can't be on this team in it with his current mindset and and uh, i to this day when i talk about culture and leadership i refer to that example uh, if someone isn't aligned with your values doesn't fit your view of the your perception of the mission the vision they can't work with you and and it doesn't matter if they're, you know, and uh, Brian, I know you've seen this, especially in the sales world. We've seen this all the time. Well, the top performer also happens to be a world-class jerk, right? And and we tolerate that 
as as leaders, business owners, because we need the revenue. But what's that doing to your culture? What's what's that doing to your vision? And what's it doing to your stomach lining and in your hairline? It's it's just not worth it. So it again at a very early age, I I lived that. Now the opposite of that, and I'm going to mention him by name, Brody. Brody played with us last year, and Brody is a guy who probably isn't like the first gentleman I mentioned. Ton of passion, loved the game of baseball, loved his teammates, um, was a sponge when it came to learning new things. He'd be in the on the bench, and he'd be asking questions all the time. Completely aligned, but uh, from a mission point of view, but not not you know, he'll probably go on to play college ball, but he wasn't like the first gentleman, right? And the more I got to know Brody over the last year, the more I realized this is the kid that I would start a business with. This is the kid that I that I would attach my start to because of his passion for the game, not his not his talent for the game. And and Brody, bless his heart, I he played first base for me. And and I'd I'd go to yell something from the bench like we weren't positioned right or we we weren't um, ready to make the. Uh, the the right play and Brody would start yelling at the at his teammates like a, like a coach would and I so I'd go to open my mouth and I'd just shut my mouth again because Brody was talking and so it was it was like having that fourth coach out on the field and a, a field general and a confident leader and and he was none of those things that you know he on our last game Brian our last game of the year he hit a ball over the fence his only home run the last game of the year. He was in tears. His mom was in tears. I was in tears. It was, it was just an amazing experience. What, uh, what a great, great moment. And I'm wondering, um, what do you think it took to hit that ball over the fence, that game, that moment, that time? Sense of urgency. I think Brody knew that our time together was done. We were in Branson, Missouri, playing at Ballparks of America. It was our season-ending tournament. Uh, for for uh, for for those in your audience who know uh, uh, youth baseball, travel baseball, Ballparks of America and Branson is like the pinnacle. It's like Cooperstown, and teams go there to end their season um, on a high note and uh, and uh, and just have fun to just not only play baseball but just to have fun as a as a group of people. And the parents come and the boys stay in a bunkhouse and three meals a day. It's a completely immersive experience and 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 Brody had come close he'd hit the wall a couple times he was always just almost right there big left-handed power swing but I think that moment it was all about sense of urgency it was all about I'm going to high school next this is it for me this is after this I I got to hit a ball over a, a 340 foot fence not a 300 foot fence this is this is my moment. And, and, and I swear, Brian, he hit the ball just as high as he did far. It, it went, I mean, I, I didn't think the ball was ever going to come down and it barely snuck over the fence, but it didn't matter. It, he rose to that moment. He, he rode that sense of urgency and, and the ball just, just crawled over the fence. Wow. Oh, wow. So that's, that's not the first time that I think, uh, that this has come up for people in their lives, that sense of urgency when something um, really, really, really matters and they need to do it at the, like that last minute. It's like, okay, it's do or die. That moment is, has, is now. And you either, 
you either get on the the horse or or you don't. Um, would you agree? And and how and did you see that over and over again as a as a coach? Oh yes, uh, as a coach certainly, but I also see it in in my business life. I and you do too. I know you do too. I I think now now that businesses are established the the books are out uh, um we, you know none of us have been traveling or speaking very much in person although thank goodness that's starting to ramp back up up again but one of the great things about this 18 20 month stay at home thing has been we just we kind of get to watch from afar now we get to instead of being just in the grind all the time we get to sit back now and more and and be more of a a mentor or a coach than a boss Right. Cause in a boss, as a manager, we're just, we're just so in the moment all the time that we don't have that chance to reflect. And, and, and especially over the last couple of years, it's just been really fun to sit back and go, who's adapting well? Who's rising to that moment? Who's, who's meeting that sense of urgency head on and hitting and hitting a home run? And then who's playing the victim? Who's, Who's who's dropping out of the human race because they're not you know they're not within their comfort zone anymore. So, especially you know the, the pandemic brought all kinds of hardship. I get that, and I'm not trying to discount that at all. Right, seven hundred thousand is a lot of people, but there have been moments where it's just been inspiring to watch people rise to the occasion. I wonder too if uh, there isn't a lot. Actually, I don't even wonder. I know, and I think you do too. That there's a fake sense of urgency out there and um what are your thoughts on that well i i i i i refer to that as a false sense of outrage actually i ah. i i think sense of urgency is it, it 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 can be omnipresent but by default if if you're feeling a sense of urgency to this moment it means the last moment wasn't that right so it's hard to be, it's hard to feel a constant sense of urgency, but it's pretty easy to feel a constant sense of outrage. And from my perspective, granted, I get to sit up here on a five acre property in the mountains in Colorado and just, you know, wonder which squirrel's going to chase who today. Right. I, so um, I have a different perspective maybe, but pretty easy to have that sense of outrage, pretty easy to be mad all the time. And God knows there's enough to be mad about. I mean, our, our political situation, the COVID thing, the, you know, the, the, the fact that we had to teach our own kids in our own homes, instead of counting on the teachers that we now will never take for granted again, you know, that, that certainly caused some outrage and some sense of urgency. But I think rather than just be angry all the time, rather than be driven by cause all the time, it's nice to have those moments where you're, just watching the squirrels chase each other outside and not not feel a sense of urgency because that allows us when it when it really hits us now we can now we can decide whether we're going to step up or not yeah i mean there are so many false deadlines and false timelines and um and we put that on ourselves you know unless somebody's actually dying i wonder sometimes if we don't create that chaos for ourselves oh we do we do it is completely self-inflicted and you and I have something in common. We at both at one point, you and I both ran an agency, and and especially in an agency, there's there's always a sense of urgency. There's always a sense of outrage. There's always somebody that you could have served better, or and and there's and there's always hopefully those moments where you get to celebrate a big win, 
right? But but you're always on, you're always up. And that's 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 hard to do all the time, right? So and again, there's no clarity that when you're always like that, there's no clarity on well, is this the important moment or is was that last one the important moment? And what about the important moment tomorrow? And it, so it all kind of runs together and it, it's it's hard to live life like that. I agree. Well, how did you look at shifts in your life? Like how did you approach one that maybe seemed insurmountable uh, and and you had to climb that and you got it done or maybe you didn't get it done? Well, I'd like to think I got it done because it was a, it was, um, talk about, uh, an important moment. Um, in 1999, I, 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 and you already know the story, Brian, I suddenly found myself a single father with full custody of four kids, um, nine, nine and a half to one and a half years old. And, and I'd been doing the Silicon Valley agency thing for almost a decade. And, uh, and I couldn't do that anymore. And the shift was enormous. And I, I remember literally sitting there in in my home in San Jose thinking, am I going to be a father or am I going to be an entrepreneur? And I can't do both. And then I went, well, that's, I'm not going to cuss on your show. That's crap. I'm, I refuse to accept that. I can be both. I just have to change the way I do it. And yes, there were some long nights and yes, there were some failures, but I decided in that moment that I didn't want to do the au pair thing. I didn't want to do the nanny thing. I needed to be there for my kids. I wanted to raise my own kids. And and I figured out, and for me, what has to this day been the biggest shift I've ever had to deal with overnight, literally overnight. Um, that That's also one of my proudest moments because I learned how to be a really good dad. I It turns out I'm really good at this. And I didn't know that before. I knew I was a good business person. I knew I was a, a, a decent husband. I I knew I was a good mentor and a good a good baseball coach, but I didn't know I was a good dad. And and um, you know that that first time my oldest daughter was sick and she was up all night, just just ungodly sick. And at first I thought, oh man, I got to get some sleep. I got a big day tomorrow. This is not working out for me. But then when she sat on my lap in the couch, turned the fire on, turned the Disney movie on, and we just sat there, I went, I got this. I can do this. Wow. Well, I feel like we should just take a moment on that one because that moment like right there is probably the biggest shift of your whole life. It was, period. In, end of story. We we moved from San Jose to Incline Village, Lake Tahoe. Um, I knew I couldn't, you know, you, well, you know, even back then, Brian, it was 45 minutes to one Cub Scout meeting and I have four kids. This is not going to work. Right? So we moved up to Incline Village on the shores of Lake Tahoe, uh, 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 where I knew a lot of people and, and, and my kids already had friends and a small town of 11,500 people at the time, they could walk to school, they could walk to church, they could do anything they wanted to do within this small town. And I didn't have to worry about them. And, and so we, it, it we completely, we turned our lives upside down and, and, and um, never looked back, never, never regretted leaving Silicon Valley, never, never regretted moving up to the mountains. Wow. I'm curious how that informed then the next, I don't know, five or 10 years of your life. Well, one, one thing I learned how to delegate a lot better, Brian, I, uh, you know, you can't, your business is still in Silicon Valley, but you're living, you know, a four hour drive away. And so it was possible to be down there. Uh, and, and we did it often, 
uh, me and all four kids, especially when they were out of school, would just, you know, we'd go down to, to Silicon Valley and, and help run the business. And, and my kids and my dogs were staples inside the office. And, and they helped me close businesses. At the time, we had not, I not only had four just adorable kids with great manners that, that, you know, would look somebody in the eye at six years old and shake their hand and, you know, hello, I'm, I'm Ryan. I'm, 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 I'm Mark's second son and, and have a conversation. Right. And, but we also had an old English sheepdog, you know, like a, a Disney dog. And, and that dog was the cutest thing on the planet. And so people would come in that office, they meet the kids and they meet the dog and they, and they beat the crew and they go, this is the kind of company I want to work with. This is, this is my vendor of choice. And, and so it wasn't, it wasn't just a shift for us. It was a shift for the entire company. We became family oriented. People could immediately, we allowed people to start bringing their dogs and their, their kids to work. And, and this is 19, 1994. Well, well, before we, we thought about well-being and mental wellness as much as we do now, we wanted to be a family-oriented business, and, and, uh, and we, we, we set an interesting precedent there. Well, that's fantastic. Man, uh, I, uh, I, va- I value, uh, and I'm sure your, your kids value those years, and um, they're looking back at it and, and saying, uh, you know, what, what the constants and knowing the consequences of this now raising their own families and, and seeing um, how much that had an effect on them. And that one little, that one little moment uh, where you said, I got to I got to go. Um, and I'm also curious to find out what then that did now in the, in the, the next phase of your life, um, because you you then took on uh, many different formats, roles, and and ways that went beyond after the kids then grew up, and you created a whole new career for yourself, right? Well, I did, and and it started with probably because of my Silicon Valley roots. I I had a friend who who launched a startup and, and the, the startup was in the online recruiting space. We competed with monster.com and careerbuilder.com back when monster.com was a big deal. And we went on to raise, um, uh, I don't know, $12 million and opened 324 uh, local hiring offices, um, all online um, and uh, in head offices, Mexico, Canada, uh, London, uh, we, we just, we just had a blast. It was this, it was like the startup dream job. And, and I got to do it all from, from my kitchen, right? It was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I, I had a, I had a, a this small desk off the kitchen and, and next to the living room where the, you know, the kids could do their thing and their homework and watch TV and whatever. And I could just sit there and work and, and, uh, no office, no brick and mortar function at all. It was, it was just me doing my thing. And nobody knew that I was in this, you know, little 900 square foot house with four small children pulling all this off. And, and so one startup thing led to another and led to another and led to another. And, and, uh, one of the startups that I, that I founded myself, uh, with some good friends was a company called U-Turn and U-Turn was designed to help college students, recent graduates, young professionals find their fit in the world of work. And, and it occurred to me shortly after we launched U-Turn in 2010 that we were sending people out to a workplace. They thought they were getting their dream jobs, only going on to live a nightmare. The same nightmare that many of the rest of us have been living, we just didn't know any better. And now Gen Y comes up and says, you know what? I don't like this. I, 
if I don't like this, I'm going to change jobs every 2.3 years. I don't have to put up with this. Right. And, and where a lot of older white males went, Oh, that was kids. Right. No loyalty. I was going, no, let's Why, why is this happening? Well, it's happening because leadership sucks. It's happening because company culture sucks. And, and why would they tolerate that? Why would they get on a train an hour and a half each way every day, work 10, 11, 12 hours a day, go home exhausted, have three beers or two glasses of wine, eat their takeout food, go to sleep, go get up and do the next unfulfilling thing the, the same way the next day. It just didn't make any sense to me. So we started having some really in-depth conversations with CEOs and startup founders and presidents and nonprofit executive directors about why does the workplace suck? Why, why can't we find a way to make work both profitable for the company and fulfilling for the employee? And that, um, as you alluded to, has been my life mission for like the last 10 years. I, I, I'm, I'm, Right now, um, besides coaching baseball and raising my youngest kid and getting to see my grandkids whenever I can, my my purpose is to make the workplace a better place. Wow! So you know, there's um, there's so much good in in uh, in everything that you touch. Like you're you're always there's always a purpose is what is the thread that I see, and I think it's ironic too, and maybe it's not ironic for you, but it is for me uh, that it's now kind of like. It, it not even kind of it's coming out in this book that you just brought out and where you're at in good comes first. And, uh, in the very, in the very first few chapters, it, you know, is about, uh, uh, Ray, Ray of hope, um, and ser- the servant purpose. And, um, and now everything that you're talking about now has led you to what you're doing. Um, so talk about that. What is, um, what is the purpose-driven work and how does that show up in business and how do you, how do you weave that into um, better, better, um, uh, better, a better job, a better role, a better, better place for everyone to work in today's world? I think purpose is, is, has been everything. And that's not a new statement. I mean, we've been talking about that for 30 years. So the thing is leaders talked about that, but didn't do anything about it. They talked about, the mission they 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 nailed literally nailed screwed the mission statement to the wall in the lobby but they never lived it we still don't very few companies actually live their servant purpose and 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 you know i know it sounds foo-foo i know it sounds like we should all grab guitars and sing around the fire it's not like that at all and and brian you know me i'm actually a very direct guy a, a very conservative in most of my thinking uh i'm i'm i uh I, I'm not a sing, sit around the, the campfire singing kind of guy at all, but I, and I still, I know that's what it sounds like. And, but it's really about how are you making a difference in somebody's life right now? And, and that's, that's what it is. And servant purpose is just like that is when we look at a leader and go, why are you in business? Well, we're here to bring value to our shareholders and our investors. What? No, that's not what I asked you. Of course, you have to make money. That's that's why you're here, right? If you're a nonprofit, of course, you have to keep the lights on. That's why you need the grants and the donations. I get that. Why 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 are you in business? Well, I just told you I'm here to make. We we saw a financial opportunity. No, stop. Not what I'm talking about. 
How do you improve the lives of your employees and your customers? Pause. Longer pause. Longer pause. And eventually about half of them say, I don't know. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Right? Well, how do you as a leader align people to your mission, align people to your purpose if you can't articulate it? And so every time we go into a company, that's the first question we ask. And when I say we, I was blessed to um, to be completely aligned with my co-author, Chris Edmonds, who you mentioned at the start of the show. And he actually had the exact same experience I did. And five years ago, we said, well, let's write this book. And then we got busy with consulting and life and craziness. And, and uh, as you know, we had a cancer attack, a member of my family. So that we took some time off to deal with that. And, and then the pandemic hit and we went, well, if we're, we're not traveling, we're not consulting much. Hey, let's write this book. Let's finally write the book. So we did. And as we were writing it, we didn't have the, by the way, that we didn't have the title good comes first. And we didn't, um, we hadn't yet articulated that in order to, to build a great place to work, we ha- we had to live our servant purpose. We hadn't, we hadn't tied those words together. We knew about servant leadership, but we hadn't figured out how important servant purpose was. Uh, it, we, we knew how important it was to, to, to do good, but we hadn't tied respect, the, the showing of respect to that. But as we interviewed more and more CEOs, good CEOs doing amazing work, those were the foundational principles. We lived our servant purpose. We, we as leaders model our, the values that, that are up on our wall. We live those values and we treat everybody, employees, customers, vendors, contractors, with the utmost respect. And those were the three defining moments. And so we eventually, over the course of the three years it took to actually write the book, and and we had to stop in the middle because COVID changed everything, right? Um, We, just by talking to leaders like at Radio Flyer and Five Below and a WD-40 company, those were the three things they all did, and they all did exceptionally well. And so... Uh, and as the more we thought about it, we, that, you know, the clients that we serve, the ones who really align well with our purpose that we help most, they do those three things. So we we turned them into foundational principles and cornerstones and, and out came good comes first. Oh, wow. Well, you know, Mark, I, as you know, could sit and talk with you all day long because there's so, so, so much that you and I have in common. And there's so much that everybody that's listening could also gain from this, but they're just going to have to go out and buy the book. And so where can everyone get it? Well, goodcomesfirst.com is is up and, up and running and uh, full of all kinds of information, not just about the book, but about why we wrote the book, why it was important to us, um, how you can assess whether or not your company's ready for a culture change initiative. And then, of course, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. And uh, the book was picked up by Penguin Random House. So we're going to be in the... Uh, in the uh, we're, uh, by the time everybody listens to this, we'll be well entrenched in Hudson News as you walk through the airport. So you can grab the book there too. Congratulations, my friend. I'm I'm beaming and proud and... Uh, and I'll get to say, I knew you when, um, and so, uh, congrats so, so, so very much. And, uh, I, I can't wait for everybody here to, to get to listen to this. Thanks again. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.